Remember, you know, our culture, being a materialistic culture, I think we really tend to pump things up and then books were written and there was so much going on and so much selling. They couldn't keep generators in stores because, you know, like the world was going to end if you didn't have a generator. And like every hardware store, they were ordering them in by bulk and they were going out faster than they could bring them in. But, you know, January uh, uh, 2000, January 1st, 2000, I was looking at this because I was just curious how, where this all went and what this was really all about because I hadn't thought about it for quite a while. And it's a little article that I got was January 1st, 2000 was supposed to be uh, to see the modern world collapse. It says this was supposedly the Frankenstein story of the information age, a fate reckoning with the technology that we ourselves have created. Uh, on one end of the spectrum, people were scared that their alarm clock wouldn't, their digital alarm clock wouldn't go off at the right time. They'd be late for work. On the other spectrum, there was uh, agonizing over atomic power plants shutting down, plane crashes. I remember hearing saying that planes could fall out of the sky, and uh, triggering this unintended nuclear war. You know, so there was this incredible buzz going on about what's going to happen, and all the buzz started like 1997. And just ramped up to 2000 and all this excitement, anticipation going on. But uh, all for naught. It ends up nothing happened as far as I know. I don't know of any glitches that took place. Just because of computers, we're going to switch over from 1999 to 2000. They'd have had to be pretty dumb computers. Like I didn't, I didn't understand what that was all about. But amazing stuff. But from 1997 to 2000, it was, all, it was the hottest topic going. And uh, people were hyped up, expecting something big, and nobody knew what. But, you know, just think if something were to happen, if the planes were to fall out of the sky, like, I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't have been flying them if they'd have thought that, but hopefully they wouldn't have been. But, you know, it would have ended up being quite a defining moment in the world, you know, because these computers are worldwide. And... Uh, Defining moments, you know, those kinds of things can really force us to make pivotal decisions and have uh, an experience that fundamentally changes us. And not only do these moments have the potential to define us, but they have the potential to, of having a transformative effect on our perceptions and our behaviors. Moments that are truly defining force us to ask why. They often challenge our beliefs and force what is really in our hearts to come to the surface. Think of a moment when your true character was revealed. You had an opportunity to excel, or you saw something maybe a little with a little more clarity that maybe wasn't quite so nice. But inevitably, the, the road to life is bumpy. It's testing our commitment to uh, whatever our purposes are. And it's so hard for us not to see these bumps in the road as uh, obstacles. And it's very difficult for us to see these bumps in the road as being opportunities for us. The irony of de these defining moments is that if we don't define them, they'll define us. And what we have, we've got to learn to view these kinds of bumps in the road, which we all experience, and they're always going to be there, We've got to learn to define these, view these moments as opportunities and learn and grow from them. And we can't allow them to cause us to be stagnant. There was a season in my life where I didn't handle a hurt quite so well. 
And I really allowed it to stagnate me. <coughs> I went through a defining moment, and I didn't respond quite the way that I should. And uh, which in turn, it really delayed what I believe. I believe it delayed my, uh, you know, being able to respond to what God wanted me to do in the call that he had on my life. Uh, but, you know, I, I thank him for his sovereignty because I, I believe that God knows how we're going to react to the trials and difficulties and the bumps that come into our lives. And I think I believe that he allows for that for us. But, uh, you know, we've just got to try to help have these things, allow them to be growth times in our lives. And when I finally yielded <coughs> and decided to respond to Jesus' call for my life, uh, I began to get involved in uh, serving at the church. And um, as soon as I did, healing started to take place immediately in my life. And uh, the biggest thing that where re- things really started to turn in my life was I was meeting with a, a, a Christian pastor friend of mine, you know, a few years before I was into uh, Livingstone's church here in the ministry. And as we're talking, he said one thing to me, and it's just like it was the voice of God, like, you know, like, I don't know, everything else just sort of fogged out. And I remember this. I don't remember anything else. I remember him. I remember the statement. And then, you know, and this statement made a huge impact on me. And he said it just in our conversation. He says, Mark, he says, you've got to learn to love God's people. And I heard God say to me, Mark, will you allow me to love my people through you? And when I responded to that, that was a defining moment in my life because I, you know, I heard it so loud and clear and I thought, man, sure, I'll let you do that, Lord. Because then it really took the onus off of me. Like My problem was I had expectations of God's people and myself. I was hard on me and I was hard on everybody else. And it just helped me to just let down my expectations and just love people. And I felt like that's what God was saying, just love them. I want to love them through you. And I said, okay. I think we could do that, Lord. And that just began a real healing and got me out of my stagnant state. So we can't allow these bumps to cause us to be stagnant. That's a waste of time. I did lots of stuff while I was stagnant, but it wasn't uh, probably the stuff that maybe God wanted me to do. Um, And none of us are exempt. We all experience these kinds of moments in our lives where we come to where we make a decision. We stop and we're faced with something, We've got to make a decision how we're going to handle this thing. And as believers, we have our instruction manual, the Word of God. It helps. It prepares us for times like that, and it guides us through moments like that. And it helps us to know what to do as we're going through them. We don't only have the manual for life, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And the Holy Spirit living within us, He gives us strength to go through whatever we've got to go through. We can take comfort and peace in that. And he's there to encourage us through these difficulties and help us to grow and to learn and to understand what it is that he's trying to help us to to accomplish. Going to Bible college was a defining moment in my life because education was not a high priority for me in my life. Our family, it wasn't a priority. It wasn't something that we talked about as a family as to getting to, say, grade 12 and celebrating or getting to grade 12 so you can go into college. None of that was really talked about. And the whole thing in my mind as a kid, because foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, my thought was, I asked my mom, I said, how old do I got to be to quit school? And 
She told me 15. So right there, I had that locked in my mind that I was going to quit school when I was 15. And when I turned 15, I quit school. And uh, went to work. And loved work better than school. But not a good choice. So, but another real defining moment in my life was seminary. Bible college was because it was like, okay, I was beginning my education. When I started Bible college, I did four years, got a Bachelor of Theology degree. And the Bible college I went to was uh, not real scholastic, it, very light, very, we call fluffy. But it was very good for me because it would just continue. It was like a, uh, we'd had it at the church that I was going to. And we had uh, several students in there. And they, we would send the courses away. They'd grade them. They'd send them back. But you did essay after essay. And, you know, they would grade you and stuff. And, I, and you know, like I, I've always been able to write. But, you know, spelling, that's another thing. And a lot of the other things, it's a lot of things. But, but you know, it helped me to get rolling. And then so when I started seminary... Seminary was another story. Like that was like a leap and a half up. My f- first course I went to, I never had any idea what seminary was about. Sign up for a course, not even think about the course until the first day of the course. You get to the course, they give you these assignments, and you got to get all these books, or you're supposed to have all these books. I spent half the semester trying to find the books. <laughs> and then, you know, so I got so behind, you can't catch up. So you end up auditing the course. And the next one, I'm, I get into the course and I start at least thinking about the books before the first class, but not getting them before the first class. And then so you wrestle again, and by the third class, I'm trying to think, oh, okay, I try to get this stuff ahead of time. <laughs> and uh, this was a defining moment for me because it really made me think and develop. But then once I got started going into the school, I started taking these courses, and these courses were difficult. Very difficult because I didn't know how to learn. I didn't know how to, how, what they were expecting of me. And so when I started taking these courses at Ambrose, I thought that I was free to take any course I wanted, and I never had any idea you take certain courses to get a certain degree. So I figured I was going to go, and I was going to take a bunch of courses, and I'd end up with a degree. And so I started taking these courses, and the first course that's on the whole thing, before you take any course, is called the personal development. That's the name of it, personal development. And I thought, what a boring sounding class. Boring and unspiritual. I'm here to learn the Word of God. So I'm not going to take that course. And so I start taking all kinds of other courses. They let me take five courses before I could have to take this course. And then I come closer to taking this course that I was really trying to avoid. I, they, I got to the place where they said to me, that's it. You have to take this course. And I said, fine, I'll take that course. And because it was hard enough, these courses I was interested in, I thought, how could I do a course that I didn't care about? This course had more impact than any other course I did at this school. And it had an impact in my thinking because it challenged how I thought. When I started this course, I found out right off the bat it was making me mad. The things they were talking about and the things that we were, you know, where it was going, the questions they were asking me with, it was, it was really ticking me off. So then, wrestling with this, and, and, be, and the fact that it was getting me mad, I was thinking, you know, what's this? Why am I getting so mad about this stuff? Like, what's going on inside of me? They were asking a simple question, like, why do you believe what you believe? And I think, well, I know what I believe until I start trying to write it down. And then as you're trying to write it down, and then you know that somebody's going to be reading it, and then they're going to be challenging what you're saying. Then you're thinking, wow, you know, like, okay, I believe that, but why do I believe that? Right? You know, and you're trying to find it and not knowing how to really research. 
It was difficult. So I knew what I believed, and they were challenging what I believed, and it was making me mad. And then so it was a wrestle inside my soul to do this course. So another question was, how did being a white male raised in a predominantly white culture all my life shape how I believed and who I was? How did being raised in a healthy home with a mom and a dad, a brother and two sisters affect who I was and how I believed and what I believed? And the professor was telling stories, very graphic stories that I was thinking, man, you shouldn't be talking like that in seminary. It was about stuff that was happening to people in the world, things that happened to individuals, uh, just very bad things and the effect that it had in their lives. And it was very explicit and it was making me think, you know, they're starting to make me think, and I was thinking as he's, they're talking, I'm getting, I'm kind of offended because it's kind of graphic stuff that he's talking about. And I'm thinking, this is Christian, you shouldn't be talking like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think, wow, you know, like as they're talking on, I'm thinking, what, how would I be today if I had experienced what some of these people had experienced? They made me read books that made me mad. <laughs> books that I wouldn't ever otherwise read. I was going to say what they were, but I thought, no, I won't say what they were. Cause... <laughs> Yet as time went on in this torturous class, I finally began to catch what they were trying to throw at me. And it was that I had to grow up in my thinking. I found that uh, all said and done, this being such an impacting course in my life, I learned so much about myself. One thing I learned, like I knew that I was set in my ways and I knew I had my mind set generally speaking, but I was so narrow and so locked in my head that I wouldn't even listen to what people said and to so many things. I learned that there was so much to learn and that I knew so little. I knew I knew so little, but I really knew how little I didn't. Anyways, it opened me up. It opened me up and it made me realize like, just like, just God is so big. He's so big. And I can't, you know, it helped me, it taught me to accept people because we're all in such different places and we're all going through such difficult things in our lives and, and who are we to judge each other? We can't judge each other. We don't know most of the time what, our, what the background is of everybody. In your young lives, it affects everything we do coming up in our lives today. So as time passed, it became very clear to me that uh, God has given us his scriptures he constantly is using these script, the scriptures, the characters in these Bibles to teach us, to encourage us, and to warn us. The scriptures that God's given us uh, is fulfilled with such inspirational lives. And we're going to look at one of God's greats here this morning. A life lived for God's glory that though he was terribly mistreated, lived high above the all-too-common reactions of rage, resentment, and revenge. And this morning we're going to look at uh, one who deliberately chose to overlook unfair offenses, overcome enormous obstacles, and model a virtue that is fast losing and has really becoming lost in our hostile age, and that's forgiveness. Chuck Swindoll says that... Uh, he says, regardless of how he was treated, in spite of how unfair, erroneous the accusations, even though he was rejected, abandoned, abused, maligned, and forgotten, he refused to become resentful and bear a grudge or succumb to bitterness. 
And this character just causes me to shake my head again and again when I read this story. And uh, this past while reading this story over and over and over, there's so much in this story I had to just fight with. How was I going to say what I... I had to figure out, okay, what was I going to say this morning? Because this story is big. This, these chapters go from chapter 37 all the way to 50, this story of Joseph. It takes up more chapters than any other character in Genesis. And... <coughs> He just, it's, he's a character that just seems to be too good to be real. And, and uh, as I've read the story over and over again, you know, even reading it slower, it, it just revealed to me even a deeper level of patience and purity. So we're going to look at the life of Joseph this morning. And I hope that when we're done looking at this story this morning, that you're leaving here shaking your head at the grace that God is offering each one of us. I pray that you will want to go home and you're going to read the story about Joseph over a few times and really glean what the Holy Spirit has for you to glean there. There's so much richness in this story. There's, there's so much tension. There's so much stress that goes on in the lives of the people. There's so much dysfunction in this family. And uh, we're going to look through Joseph's trials and difficulties through the most hopeless and darkest moments that he was uh, in his courage, that it was his courage that gave him the strength to do the right thing, that allowed God to use him to accomplish his will. And that was to save his immediate family, and that was to save a a nation 400 years later, and it was to get salvation to the point where it's at even today to us. It was because Joseph was willing. It allowed God to accomplish his will through him. We're going to start well into this uh, story We're barely going to be scratching the surface because of how many chapters it's over, and we're just picking out chapter 45, verses 1 to 8. And we're going to see the emotional torment. We have to scratch this little bit, but where we're scratching, we're going to really look at, in chapter 45 here, Joseph's emotional response to what he experienced in the first 13 years that he was sold as a slave and the difficulties that he went through. And then... uh, being raised to governor over Egypt. So in chapter 45, verses 1 and 2, it says, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. It says he could stand it no longer. He broke down and wept. He broke down and wept. The Egyptians could hear him. The word quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. He could stand it no longer. He broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear. Through the walls they could hear. And word of it carried quickly to Pharaoh's palace. There's obviously some real bent up emotion here going on. When I first read this, I just thought, you know, okay, there's some pain coming out of Joseph here. And as we go on, we're going to learn there's more than just pain that's coming out of Joseph here. But... There's pain when you think of all the things that Joseph went through. And I had to ask the question, you know, okay, what, what is this, you know, the emotional pain that Joseph experienced? It must have been awfully painful for him. And then I got thinking about his rejection as a, a young man. And uh, we look back on Joseph's life, we see that he was hated by his brothers. He was 17 years old, his brothers were older. And as a, a little brother, 
And I really discovered, like, when my brother passed away, and I started, you know, when you have somebody that you're close to that you love passes away, you really do a lot of reflecting on your life with them. And, you know, I never realized it at the time, but you noticed, and I've noticed it since then with little brothers. I watch them, and you see that little brothers idolize their big brothers. They just look at them. You look at Derek and Amy's little guy, the littlest guy, he's always watching Will, and then he just does exactly what he does. Little brothers love their big brothers. Even if they think they hate them, they love them. They want to be loved by them. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Joseph had uh, dreamt dreams that offended them, saying that he would rule over them. Because his big brothers hated him and he had a dream like that, his dream was that uh, his sheep stood up, he was out there out harvesting, and their sheep bowed down to him. When he told them that, they said that they hate him, hated him, couldn't say a good word about him. Jacob very loudly favored Joseph, which caused jealousy. And uh, Jacob wasn't, you know, in that whole dysfunction of that family, there's a lot to be said about Jacob's handling of how he handled this situation. He was a big product of the hatred that they had towards Joseph. But because he was so favored, the kids just, they hated him all the more. The hatred was so pronounced that they even conspired to kill him. They wanted to kill him and they planned on killing him. But one of the brothers, Reuben, talked him out of it. And so his brothers sold, instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. And he went into Egypt. He became a slave to the man, a man named Potiphar. And uh, Potiphar loved him, put him in charge of all of his house because Joseph just did nothing but worked hard all the time. But the problem was Potiphar's wife loved him too. And she, uh, he was falsely accused because she had tried to uh, make advances at him and he refused. And then so she told her husband that he'd made advances at her. And then so he got thrown into the dungeon at, in Egypt. He was forgotten there for a number of years. And then uh, we see that the cupbearer and the baker for Pharaoh were thrown into this dungeon. And, the Pharaoh, and it says that they were in there for some time. So we know that Joseph was in there for quite a while. And so he gave a favorable, he interpreted the cupbearer's dream. And then Joseph asked him, remember me when you get out and you get reestablished into your position with Pharaoh so that I can get out of this place, he says. Then he was forgotten again, it says, for two full years. Talk about a hopeless thing. He's got no family in Egypt. He's got nobody that knows him or nobody even cares about him. He's all alone. And Pharaoh has a dream that disturbs him greatly. The cupbearer remembers Joseph, and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. He's brought before Pharaoh, and he interprets his dream, which results in Joseph being promoted to second in Egypt, second in command, the governor of all of Egypt. So he went from one day being in this hopeless, dark dungeon to being second in command, and it's really it's awesome when you read. Like There's so much in this, and it's so full. It talks about Joseph when he got out, and he got in his, that chariot that he went, and he just uh, rode all over Egypt. You know, just taking a look at the whole land. I could imagine him getting out of there and then all of a sudden being put into this position, people having to bow down to him. And just, I can just see him just going through the wind out and seeing the sky and being free. He probably felt freer than you could really ever understand. Nine years later, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They came down to Egypt in search of food because the famine was ravaging the land. So we see... When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, uh, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? God is beginning to build his nation of Israel or he's drawing them down to Egypt. 
I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough to keep us alive. Otherwise, we will die. So we see God's drawing them down. He's going to plant them in Egypt. We see in chapter 15 of Genesis, God predicts this to uh, Abraham. He tells Abraham this nation's going to go down. His descendants are going to go down and be captive, held captive for 400 years, enslaved. And, and this is why, you know, today um, we need to really be praying, like, because like Pastor Paul was saying, God is the one that is in control. And we see that through this story, it's very clear. God is the one that is in control, and he's orchestrating all of this. And God is in control today. The governments are not in control. Like we, you know, these, like, just like the bumps in the road, we sort of look at the bumps in the road. That's what we see. That's what we feel. But by faith, we know that God is in control. And we need to really grab that. And because if we really do know that and believe that, we need to pray. We need to pray because James 5.16, it says that the earnest prayer of a righteous person is powerful and produces wonderful results. Do we believe that? Do we believe that our prayers make things happen? Because if we don't, we're not reading the Bible enough. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. And I think if we're praying, we're praying by faith. So we have a responsibility before God for our families as grandparents, as you become grandparents, it seems like that seems to be coming to be more and more obvious to me that, boy, my job is huge in praying for my kids and my grandkids. So continuing uh, verse 42, 6, we see that it says that Joseph was uh, governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to the, all the people. It was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly. But he pretended that he was a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. And where are, you, where are you from, he demanded. We're from Canaan, they replied. We come to buy food. He accuses them of being spies several times in chapter 42 and ends up throwing them in prison for uh, three days. And my imagination is like reading through this story and reading it slowly. And just like when I read the scriptures, I like to imagine being there. And, and, you know, I sort of just visualize it and picture it. And I had this imagination of Joseph. This would be a rough three days for him. When you get confronted with something that's difficult, something that flashes up maybe from your past that you haven't really maybe dealt with yet, or maybe you've dealt with it, but it comes up again. And you have, and you have to respond to it. And you know what the right thing is to do, but you're wrestling with doing the right thing. And... Uh, I can just see him having a very rough three days. He's got these three scoundrels in the jail, or these, his brothers in, in, in the dungeon. And I could see him at work, kicking things around, walking by and kicking the dog, and just in a bad mood altogether because he's got to deal with... His, fat, his past is coming to, his, to the front, and he's got to deal with his brothers. In my imagination, I see him thinking about all the misery he went through all because of these guys that they actually tried to get rid of him they sold him as a slave they were going to kill him but they sold him as a slave and you know he had to get very homesick we see that he does really through the scriptures through all these texts you see that there was great grief in him I can see him talking to God and I can see God telling him Joseph I want you to love them and I want you to forgive them and uh I bet that he had the hardest few days that he had had since he had been out of there. Because this was about two years into this uh, time he got out of jail, out of, 
out of the dungeon in two years by the time they came. And so we get a glimpse of his struggle, and it's very interesting how Scripture is. We see Joseph, when he got out, he was given a wife, and, uh, and he had kids. And here we see, he named his first son, his older son, Manasseh, who he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. And he named his second son, Ephraim, and he said, For God has made me fruitful in the land of my grief. This would have been an incredibly tough time for Joseph. From the time he was 17 until he was 20, this were about 20 years into this, After, by the time he was sold as a slave. So we see that Joseph was deeply hurt <clears throat> just in the naming of his sons and in the testing of his brothers. They, you know, he really put them through the ringer. But you know, as I've been reading through this story, I don't believe that he was putting this pressure on them because he hated them and because he was going to get back at them. And that's the incredible thing about this story too. He put them, they just were really, they were squeezed so hard and the pressure was so intense. Uh, They experienced about as much pressure, I think, that a person could handle. And it really is hilarious. When you read the story, you read their reaction stuff. It is really quite funny because like they are just strung out on fear and anxiety and what are we going to do? They were put in a position two times where... Joseph wanted to test them. He kept Simeon back, sent them all back to get Benjamin, his younger brother. And uh, while they were gone, he kept Simeon. He's testing them. Are you going to let abandon your brother like you abandoned me? And then they brought Simeon back, tested their honesty through the whole thing, brought uh, Benjamin back. And then when Benjamin came back, he put his gold, his silver cup in his bag, sent them home, and then they barely got out of the city. And then Joseph had his tenant chase them. And then grab him and find this silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And we see how the brothers repent. And the brothers are so grieved because Benjamin is now going to be, as far as they know, they don't have no idea who Joseph is. He's putting this, they just can't figure out what's going on because they're trying to be so honest. They're, 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 they're tiptoeing, they're bowing to him face to the ground. And then here Benjamin's got this cup in his bag. And then you see Judah and Reuben, the two older brothers, offering their lives as a sacrifice for Benjamin, saying, you know, our, our dad will die if you keep Benjamin, and they just plead with them. The chapter in there, the scriptures that talk about that, you just see such brokenness, and uh, you see such repentance, you see such remorse, and there's such regret on, on behalf of his brothers. And then so we see in chapter 42, 21, 22, it says, speaking among themselves, they said, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph so long ago. This is 20 years later. They don't know anything about anything that's going on right now, but this is what they're talking about. Because of what we did to Joseph so long ago, we saw the anguish, uh, his anguish when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? Reuben asked. But now you wouldn't listen. But you wouldn't listen, and now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter, and now he turned away from them and he began to weep. I think in his weeping, I think we're seeing a little bit more than just uh, the the pain coming out. I think we're seeing just a little bit of emotion towards he's, he's seeing such love in his family, something that he never experienced when he was home. Joseph saw and he heard their regret, and their care for his family. All of the pain in his past is all coming, flooding to the surface. 
And we see Joseph at this time, the text, in the text that at, uh, at the place where he is satisfied that his brothers do regret what they did to him. And uh, I really believe that it was easy for him to forgive them when he saw such repentance and such remorse. So back to chapter 45, it says, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were so many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out all of you. And so he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly got carried to Pharaoh's palace. Pain from hurt, but I'm thinking there's also tears of tremendous joy here coming at the very same time, and what a mixture of emotions going on in Joseph's life. I believe that there's these tears of joy because he's seeing, when he sees the regret and he sees the care and the sacrifice that these guys are willing to make for for, uh, Benjamin, I think it just breaks him. It's like he can't contain himself no longer in this thing. And we sort of see this come out as he changes his tone. We see he says, "I I am Joseph, he says to his brothers. Is my father still alive? Up till this point, he was playing this little game of testing them, and he was talking about about your father. Is your father still alive? Is your brother, how's your brother doing? And stuff like that. Now his whole demeanor has changed here, and he says, is my father father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of him, them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. He said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. See, in our lives and all the difficulties, the potholes, these bumps in life, these defining moments that we have, you know, it's hard not to react to them with our heads and uh, rather than our hearts. I think a lot of times we know to do the right thing. And I think as we mature as Christians, we grow and we react the wrong way and we realize, oh, that wasn't really the right thing to do because all of a sudden we get our lives right with God again kind of thing. And we just sort of come to a place where we start to react the way that maybe we should react and respond. We're responding by faith because we've come to know that reacting the wrong way does not work. And it's such a great picture in the word of God, that it was not God who sent me here ahead of you. It, but, you know, the thing that got me too, I read that. It was God who sent me here to, ahead of you to preserve your lives, you scoundrels. You know, I went through all of that so that God would spare your lives. Like, that's an incredible thought too. You know, so when we're going through these difficulties, we hit these bumps in the road, we really need to have our minds set on things above, not on the things of earth. You know, we're to be led by the Spirit. Have our minds set on the things of the Spirit. And we won't gratify to the desires of the sinful nature, which are rage, malice, slander, and all those wonderful things. This family that uh, has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, he says, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So God, so it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, the governor of all of Egypt. It is God who builds up, and it's God who tears down. If, our, if we are, as, as Paul introduces a lot of letters, slaves to Jesus Christ, 
Do we believe it? You know, is he really leading our lives? Is he really the one in control of our lives? You know, because he does. He's the one that advances us. We just, I've always tried to coach my boys growing up. If you work the hardest and you do the best that you can do, you'll never be out of work. Because that's not everybody's attitude. And I think especially if you're packing around the name of Jesus, all the more responsibility to be the best and work the hardest and prefer everybody else and really to make everybody else look better than you if you can possibly do it. I was taught uh, by a boss that I had, don't give me any excuses. I don't care what your excuses are. And, you know, and it really helped me. It made me realize, okay, excuses are nothing. They're not good enough. And so... And then as I'm growing in your faith, you just, okay, you're getting blamed for something. You know it's that guy's fault. It's not my fault. That guy did it. You just take it. They know what's going on. Your bosses, they know exactly what's going on. We might think that they don't know what's happening, but they do. Because I owned a company and I know what's going on. I knew. These guys didn't think I knew, but I knew. So we have to keep in mind that God is in control, not our government's. The stuff we see going on in our governments, it's tremendously painful and it's just like, it's kind of scary because it's really quite extreme. But like it says, if my people, which are humble themselves by, humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them and and heal their land, hear their prayer and heal their land. So we need to know the Lord. And the Apostle Paul encourages us in Colossians 3, 1 to 3, he says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the heavenly realities or realities in heaven where Christ is seated, sits in place of honor at the right hand of God, thinking about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. That's where we spend our time thinking about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. In this congregation, there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, because there's, every life here is different. We're all individuals, and uh, there's such a variety. Like Pastor Paul said, there's good things, there's bad things, there's fun things, there's not such fun things, there's hard things to go through. But the, and the amazing thing is that God's grace is here for each one of us, and he knows about every situation here. Maybe you need to be... Uh, convicted this morning i pray that you're convicted to the core of your being and that you realize and can see the hand of grace that god is holding out to you you know like take that conviction and humble yourself and say yes lord repent and let god have his way in your life maybe you need to be encouraged here this morning i pray that you're so encouraged that you learn about god hasn't forgotten about you that he knows exactly where you're at, he knows exactly what you're going through, and he knows exactly what time it is in his eternal clock. And there's a scripture, take a new grip with your tired hands and stand firm on your shaky legs and mark out a straight, smooth path for those that follow, because there are people that are following. If you're a believer, there's people that are following, they're watching. We all get hurt in life. We can't allow these hurts to define us. We can't allow these hurts to stagnate us. We have to, uh, we've got to stand up and receive the grace that Jesus is offering us because he's offering us grace all the time. And he's made it available to us by his suffering on the cross. And he's 
wants us to learn and grow and understand that there is a way to live this life in a very healthy and a productive way. And if you're hurting right now, you know, there's a lot of times we, when we're stagnant, it's something that's happened in our past. And, you know, it seems to follow us through life. Uh, we're stagnant. We can't get past something. We can't get beyond an issue in our lives. We can't seem to get to the next place where God is wanting us to go. We know what we should be doing, but we just can't seem. We keep bouncing back to this thing. We've got a great ministry in the church, and it's called Celebrate Recovery. And, the, and it's a good ministry. It's about hurts, which I think a lot of stuff that... Uh, uh, it reaps, we reap a lot of fruit from uh, the hurts of our past if we have never dealt with them. And, and you may not know what the hurt is, but Celebrate Recovery is so great because they have it's called, this is a 12-step program, but it's a program that helps you just take one step at a time and uh, it brings you to each position as you deal with this, as you face this, as you recognize it. Uh, you know, like the Holy Spirit just leads you to the recognizing each step to a place where you're at the 12th step where you are free. And uh, I want to encourage you, in that ministry, like if you're really struggling, you're not advancing in the kingdom of God, you're not moving the way that you feel like you should, try it. Try Celebrate Recovery for about six weeks. And I guarantee you that you probably will stay for the thing, you know, to go through it, because it's so good. It's very encouraging. So maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe you feel like life has been very unfair. Maybe you feel like uh, you've had erroneous accusations against you, been rejected, abandoned, abused, maligned, and forgotten. Maybe you felt justified in being feeling resentful, and maybe you've held a grudge and succumbed to bitterness because of it. I pray that you can see the hand of God that he's holding out to you this morning. Like that first slide, God's grace is sufficient. Paul had an issue where he felt like he couldn't live with, and God said, suck it up, Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient. You know, he does give us the strength. He says we can do all things through him. Who, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Mount up with wings as eagles. As we wait on him is where our strength comes from. So this morning we're going to do something just a little bit different. I'm going to have you stand. And we're going to close and pray together. The prayer that we pray when we close uh, Celebrate Recovery every uh, Tuesday night. So I just want you to follow me in this, praying the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Change the things, yeah. And the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would like it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this world and supremely happy in the next. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives within us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your people. Help us in our unbelief. Draw us to yourself, Lord God. Make us one with you. I pray that all of the pain that's in this room, Lord God, that it would be all turned toward you, Lord, and that you would help us to just release it and to receive all that we need of the healing power from your spirit, Lord. 
Bless your people as they go. In Jesus' name, amen.